when you think of beauty in creation, when you think of beauty in creation, what comes to mind? Not a rhetorical question. When you think of beauty in creation, what immediately comes to mind? Go. A baby. Water. Oh. Ocean. Sunsets. Snow? No. <laughs> Trees. We, we look outside, you know, this, this past, last week, uh, Laura and I were gone, obviously, to Mexico, and I'll tell you, there was nothing like looking outside and seeing the sun come up over the Gulf of Mexico, the oranges and the purples and the yellows, and it was just this absolute beauty. And there was also the, the crash of the waves. I think that's one of the reasons Laura wanted to go to Mexico and why someday we'll retire in, I don't know, Mexico or Florida, and I'll keep on doing gospel work. My wife will long to wake up every morning and hear the crashing of the waves onto the shore. There's something absolutely beautiful about the creation. But here's the next question. Where is the beauty of God most on display? Is the beauty of God most on display in those things that we just described, the, the trees and the, the nature that we see outside? Is it the mountains? Is it the crashing of the waves onto the shore? Is it, is it found in the, the beautiful sunset or the sunrise? Is it found in a beautiful picture that's found in, a, in an art gallery? Is it something like that? If somebody would say, where is the beauty of God most on display, where would you point them? Oh, thank you. To us, the beauty of God is most evidently displayed in Christians. A man named Dane Ortland wrote a book on Jonathan Edwards, and the first chapter that in his book is an overview of the concept of divine beauty. According to Dane Ortland, he said this, to become a Christian is to become alive to beauty. To become a Christian is to become alive to beauty. A person who has become, has become in Christ is able to see the world through a whole new set of lenses. He or she can see the beauty of God reflected in the world, even though the world is absolutely broken. In other words, there is no real beauty apart from God's beauty. But where do we see God's beauty most clearly displayed? I found this to be an intriguing question, and Jonathan Edwards has a compelling answer in one of his sermons. He says this, The supreme instance of divine beauty can be reflected in create, being reflected in creation is not in the sun or the Grand Canyon or a nightingale song, but in a Christian. And Christian living is participation in God in the supreme loveliness of his nature. And what if, and if what defines God supremely is his beauty or loveliness or excellency, then to participate in the triune life of God is to be swept up and to exude that heavenly resplendence. A Christian is one who is being beautified. Do you see what Dane Ortland and Jonathan Edwards are saying the closest representation of the beauty of God or the most beautiful thing in creation 
is a Christian who reflects the beauty of God. Here's how Edward said it in one of his sermons. That grace and holiness, that divine light and love, and that peace and joy that is in the hearts of the saints is the communication from God. Those are streams, or rather drops, from the infinite fountain of God's holiness and blessedness to the ray from the fountain of light. So when we share in the beauty that is found in God, there is something absolutely beautiful about us. So as we look at Romans chapter 6, we see Paul is really addressing something about the beauty of what it means to be in Christ. A Christian who is in Christ and who lives in Christ in his or her daily life not only reflects the beauty of God, but there is something more that is happening here. Something more beautiful and more attractive that is as compared to all of creation. There's something more beautiful about being a Christ follower, about being God-exalting, sin-defeating, and a righteousness-pursuing Christian. Sin is the pursuit of what looks beautiful, what looks attractive, what seems to appeal, but in reality, it truly is not. For example, uh, imagine... If you're reflecting back on your life and you're around the age of 80 and you're thinking back over all the decades, all the moments of your life, and as you think back on your life, is it more attractive, as you think back on your life, more attractive to be able to remember all the women or all the men that you slept with? Or is it more attractive to be faithfully married to one woman for your entire life? Is it more attractive to think back about all the people with whom you harbored bitterness or you've gotten revenge? You stuck it to them. Or is it more attractive to know that you have treated unkind people with mercy and chose to love people who have done you wrong? Is it more attractive to circle yourself around with material goods that you have rightly accumulated for yourself and for your pleasure and your enjoyment? Or is it more attractive to see the impact of that money as it is used to further the gospel, to translate the Bible into an unknown language, or to support someone who is reaching lost people for Christ? What is far more beautiful? So Romans chapter 6 is designed to help us understand the beauty of what it means to truly be in Christ. It's filled with liberating truths of, of, that, that could woo us towards what it means to be truly lovely, truly beautiful in Christ. Often people think of Christianity as totally being future-oriented. You know, I'm saved, I've got my fire insurance, right? And I, I can't wait for heaven. But the reality is here, that is a tragedy. To think that being in Christ has just future implications. According to Romans chapter 6, being in Christ is something that is supposed to work now. 
There, there's a future beauty. Yes, absolutely. For sure. Yes and amen. But there's something beautiful offered now. It's not completed in this immediate world that we live in. But being a Christian who lives in Romans chapter 6 is beautiful now as well. So we're going to unpack this. Sadly, happily, I don't know how to explain it. We're going to have to we're going to take a brief hiatus from Romans chapter 6. I wish we could keep unpacking it over the next few weeks, but next week we start Advent. The holiday seasons are upon us. And so next week we will ro- jump into Matthew chapter 1 and walk through the scandal that's found in in Matthew's lineage, but for today I want you to just kind of revel in what we are going to find here. Paul begins his message in verse number one, asking a rhetorical question. Starting chapter six this way is meant to get our attention, right? He, he kind of asks a startling question of you. He, he says, listen, what, what, how, how do we do? What shall we say then? Are we supposed to continue in sin that grace may abound? And part of you is going, Really? Is, is that really what it is? So this rhetorical question is meant to get you thinking. They're not really questions. They're, it's more of a statement for you. A statement with a question mark. For instance, kids, think about this. If your mom says, if your mom says this, how are you ever going to get this room clean? It's not really a question like, well, mom, what I'm going to first do is pick up all the Legos off the floor and then I'm going to make my bed and do this. No, no, it's more. She's not looking for a technical answer at that point. Men, if your wife says, are you going to watch football all today? It's not one of those questions where you say, well, actually, honey, there's a halftime. And during that halftime, well, I was thinking about going out, mowing the lawn or raking leaves and maybe helping you do some laundry. That's not what they're, they're looking for. What they're really trying to do is they're, they're making a statement at that point and saying, cut it out. Stop it. Do the work. Live into this reality. So Paul's question in verse 1 is, are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? Why did he ask that question? First, because it was a common objection that was going to be raised. He knew his opponents were going to raise this question, and he anticipates it. You know, the people were fearful that Paul's teaching about grace could lead to excess. And he wanted to raise the objection from the very beginning and say, hold on a second, really? Secondly, he raises this question because Paul knows the absolute scandalous nature of grace. It's scandalous. And he's just kind of unpacked it in Romans chapters 1 through 5. So to say that we are justified by faith and not by works, that we have peace with God as well as a a new, brand new, spanking new standing in grace, that we are now in Christ is almost unbelievable if you really understand what he is saying. If you get it, it's like, really? That is scandalous. To be justified means that you are not only forgiven, but you have been granted immunity from God's wrath. And this could really lead to someone to charge Paul with giving them a license to sin. 
So I've got immunity from God's wrath. So therefore, I have freedom to sin. I can do whatever. God has given me a blank check of freedom in Christ so I can do whatever the heck I want to. And Paul is saying, no. You don't sin so that grace may abound. So here's a question for you to to consider as you as you think through this scandalous grace when was the last time that someone charged you with being dangerously gracious really dangerously gracious when was the last time your kids felt uncomfortable because of the implications of what you were saying about God's grace and God's forgiveness Really, Dad? That's true? That's, that's scandalous. Here's the reality. Grace can be abused, right? For sure. We felt it. You, you, you probably experienced it in life. You've probably abused grace more times in your life than you wish could be true. But sometimes I think that we are so afraid of its abuse that we downplay the scandalous miracle that it actually is. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is going to call us to be righteous, but he sets that call in the context of the amazing, rich soil of grace. I think our default of, as humans is to be at times so concerned of where could this go, or let's not be too extreme, that we lose the scandal of grace. We hold back in fear that if I allow this, if I express this grace, this love, this forgiveness, this could get out of control. And Romans 6 dares us to see grace as scandalous immunity that actually motivates us to do good. For those of you who are kind of uh, history buffs, go back all the way to 2014. I know it's a long ways back. Back in 2014, one of the many reasons that we withdrew the troops from, from Iraq was because our government and the Iraqi government could not agree on the issue of immunity for our American troops. Our government did not want the American troops to be subjected to any kind of potential uh, political gamemanship uh, with trumped-up charges played out in a foreign country. In other words, we did not want our guys to be put on, on trial for the sake of political games that were going on overseas. And so the Iraqi government was concerned about what the troops might do, our troops might do, if they were granted full immunity, full freedom from prosecution. So with that backdrop, imagine the scenario if immunity could be used for good. What if immunity, the freedom from any kind of prosecution, served actually as a motivator? A motivator for you to help People, to serve them freely and to get involved in the mess of their lives because nothing bad could ever be brought against you. Imagine a soldier who could use his immunity 
not to get away with the crimes, but to serve people without fear of being taken advantage of or being charged with a crime because of a misunderstanding. Or a, a convicted criminal who is granted not just a pardon, but a lifetime immunity and who uses that brand new grace-filled freedom not to commit more crimes, but to minister to people who were trapped as he was prior to being granted full immunity. Friends, that's where we are. You have been granted freedom. You have been granted immunity. And that should propel you to dispense grace liberally on friends and neighbors and on our community. It would be understandable just to be kind of nervous about immunity, but it would also be powerfully used for good. And this is the theme of chapter 6 and why Paul starts with that rhetorical question. So he, he, he makes this strong statement after saying, so do we sin so that grace may abound? And his response is, of course not! By no means! And that is followed by what what is the main thought for verses 1 through 11, which is how can we who died to sin still live in it? And that's the question, honestly, that every one of you needs to ask. How can we who have died to sin still live in sin? Is anybody struggling with any sin this morning? Okay, the the rest of you are liars. Every one of you up and down each one of these pews, should be asking yourself, how can I, who have died to sin, if I am in Christ, if I have died to sin, how is it that I am still living in it? Please note that Paul is not making a command. Rather, he is declaring what has already been made true for a believer and identifying how it should work. The the believer is dead to sin. Therefore, he or she should not live in sin. That is the very point. So what does it mean to be dead to sin? Romans 5 through 6, sin is more than just being just the specific and individual things that human beings would do to break God's law. Sin is described in these two chapters, 5 and 6, of having power over human beings. Let me show a few examples, both in what we've studied and what's going to be coming. Sin came into the world through Adam, and death spread to all of mankind. Sin reigns in death. Human beings are enslaved to sin. Christians are told not to let sin reign in our lives. Christians are commanded to not not present their bodies to the control of sin. The rule of sin should be resisted as Christians. So clearly there's a sense in Romans chapter 6 that we are talking about more than just the specific daily sins that we commit. To be dead to sin means that the power of sin, the very power of sin in your life has been so altered for the person who has experienced God's grace. Paul uses very strong and uncomfortable words for some of us. Death. 
to communicate something very significant. Something very significant has happened in a, a believer's relationship to sin. After all, dead men and dead women cannot, should not sin. They are dead. So what are we talking about here in Romans chapter 6? Is not only scandalous, but it is very significant. Dead to sin is a dramatic, dramatic statement. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be dead to sin? Well, verses 3 to 10, Paul unpacks the believer's death to sin as being united to Christ. As I shared with the, the worship team this morning, this idea of being united with Christ, the union with Christ is one of the most underestimated, un, uh, under-understood theological concepts or theological realities for most Christians. A believer is dead to sin because he is united to Christ. United to Christ. Just, just notice all the times, beginning in verse 3, where Paul uses the language that connects the believer to the work of Christ. Connects. Baptized into Christ Jesus. Baptized into His death. Buried with Him. United with Him in His death. United with Him in His resurrection. Crucified with Him. Died with Christ. Live with Him. You hear all the ways that a believer, when we are dead to sin, is completely dependent upon being united with Christ. However, this concept is not easily understood. So the text gives us four ways that believers are united to Christ. So before we let, look at each one of, the, one of them, let me remind you that if you are here today and you are not a follower of Christ. Hear this. What I'm about to share with you does not apply to you. It could, but it won't. Until the cross, you cross the line of putting your faith in Christ Jesus and trusting His death on the cross for your sin. However, once you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, something supernatural, something life changing happens to you and it is called your union with christ so listen to these four things first we are baptized into his death the theme of baptism is very obvious in verses three to four as paul uses it three times right baptized into death baptized into his death bap buried by baptism into death so is paul so paul is paul really referring here specifically to the physical baptism, the actual act of, man, you've been buried into, into Christ by, by physically going under the water or having water put on you? Is that what Paul is specifically talking about right here? Is he saying that somehow baptism creates a spiritual reality? And Paul would say, of course not. That's not what I'm talking about. Because that would be tantamount to kind of a works-oriented salvation if you just get baptized you'll have a spirit new spiritual reality which honestly is a bunch of baloney that's not what 
the Christian life is about. Instead, Paul is using baptism in a sacramental or a, a, a symbolic kind of sense, both to describe those who are in Christ and to describe what happens to those who are in Christ. The main theme of our text is not baptism, per se, but rather a believer's participation in the work of Christ that is shown in baptism. Baptism becomes a a road sign, a picture of a reality, a spiritual reality. To be baptized into His death, to be buried with Him by baptism into death is a powerful statement. It reflects that those who receive Christ, His death becomes our death when it comes to the penalty of sin. In chapter 5, we learned that Adam served as our representative, right? And it was Adam, in Adam, that we sinned by the same means of representation. Those who put their faith in Christ are plunged into His death. From a spiritual standpoint, we fully participate in the death of Christ. His death is our death. But that's not it. The second thing that we see is that we are united in His resurrection. Our union to Christ is total. Total. Everything that He is, we are in Him. In the same way that we participated in His death and His burial, we also, and this should be an amen moment, we also participate in His resurrection. Because you don't want to stay dead, right? You want to participate in the resurrection. So to understand what Paul means here, let's start at verse 5. Paul argues that if we are united with Christ in His death, then we are also united with Him in His resurrection. There's life. One cannot be baptized into death without also sharing the resurrection. To be in Christ is to share everything. Everything, friends. This is good news. Everything that is in Christ. Some of you are just going, I just don't know if I can make it through. What's yours in Christ? Everything is yours in Christ. But verse 5 seems to have a future view in mind, doesn't it? The idea that as Christ died and rose from the dead, so those who are in Christ will also be raised to life in the, in the, the end of days. As we all see so often in the Bible, thanks be to God, death is not the final word. Christ will, in the end, raise all who belong to Him so that they can live forever with Him. And that is great that we are anticipating that one day, that final resurrection, where we will see Christ and we will behold the glory of God. We will enjoy His presence and we will be united with brothers and sisters who are in Christ and share that same inheritance. And that's why when there is death within the family of God, we, can, we, we mourn, but we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We mourn as those who have hope. 
So death does not have the final word. But resurrection, friends, is not only a future thing. We forget that. And we've been told that. Oh, someday, someday, someday. There is something immediate right now, but it's not complete in its effect. And that is what verse 4 is all about. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Well, when is this life? Now! Now, today, the resurrection of Christ not only brings life in the future, it brings a newness now, today, right where you are at, in your situation, in your hopelessness, in your sin, in your depravity, in your loss of, oh God, can I make it through? And Christ is saying, yes, it is yours today. Walk in the newness that is in Christ today. Listen, throughout the Bible, there are reference to things being new because of being in Christ. There is a new covenant. There is a new creation. There is a new humanity. There is a newness of the Spirit. So while Christ has not returned yet, and while we long for the day when that occurs, there is a real sense in which the believers are able to experience the invasion of Christ's victory into our lives and into our worlds today. He, he, he's invading. He's permeating. He is in, if you are in Christ, it is yours today. So being united in Christ's death and His resurrection means that there is a very, very real sense that believers are to live Right now, in the reality that Jesus has broken the power of canceled sin. He has broken it. Those chains that bind you, broken. Broken. Christ's death was only half of the story. That's why Easter should be a huge celebration for us, right? It's not just Good Friday. Almost every we should have that common greeting. He's risen. He's risen indeed. And it was like, yes! Because that's mine right now. Christ's death was only half the story. His death paid for the penalty of sin, but his resurrection validated the fact that God's wrath has been totally satisfied. The empty tomb says that the cross worked. It worked. So resurrection means that sin no longer has power over you. Hear that. It does not have... I just can't, I just can't push through. I, I can't do this. I can't... What kind of Christ do you serve? What kind of Christ died for you? He has canceled. He has paid for that sin. The tomb is empty and you can live into the newness of life. If you are in Christ. And that, friends, is not just good news. That is the best news. But we move on to a third way of how Paul describes our union with Christ by connecting the crucifixion of Christ to the crucifixion of the old self. So we are crucified with him. 
He's already made that point that we've died with Christ, right? So how is this any different? Paul's endgame is freedom. Think about that. The endgame is freedom. And some of you are going, yes, I long for that. I have been chained down and somehow, okay, I get the resurrection thing, but somehow I am still feeling chained down and I have no freedom. And we see that very clearly in, in verse 7 where he says, for one who has died has been set free. Been set free from sin. Union with Christ is not only about union. Romans chapter 6 is about union with Christ that brings new life, a free life, a beautified life. Totally free life. Notice how how this is stated after the phrase, in order that, in verse 6. There's two glorious outcomes, and they are, are, are linked together. That the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Some of you, in very specific kind of hidden and dark ways, know what it means to be enslaved to sin, don't you? Right now. Enslaved to sin. And they're the kind of things that we don't want to talk about right now, right? If I, hey, tell me about how you're enslaved to sin, you're going, "Mm mm-mm, I don't got any problems. It's not safe right here. But the reality is, Paul's vision is that sin would lose its power so that believers in Christ Jesus could truly experience freedom from the enslaving power of sin in your life. That's his vision. He wants you to be experience freedom. He wants you to experience life as it's meant to be. But what does it mean that our old self was crucified with him? It's referring to that categorical characteristic of being in Adam. The old self is in Adam's nature, right? And that, that, that's in you. It is, it is the individual connection to the, to the curse, to the guilt, to the penalty of the fall. I'm in Adam. It is a natural inclination in your life to allow evil and sin to rule your world. It's the way of thinking, of acting and feeling that is a part that is part and partial to what is broken and what is wrong in this world. The old realm, friends, has been defeated. Along with the old realm, there's an effect on the body. And this is where Paul gets really, really practical to say that the body of sin might be brought to what? Nothing. The body of sin is going to be brought to nothing. means that the location where sin expresses itself, the body, has been rendered as no longer in charge. No longer in charge. The body is what rules those who are in Adam. The flesh is what rules those who are in Adam. But those who are in Christ Jesus, the body, while not fully redeemed, not fully whole, not fully right, is no longer the master. 
Here's how it's stated in Romans 8, 9 and 10. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The body and its connection to being in Adam is no longer in charge. And the effect is that we are no longer slaves to sin. And some of you are going, I've been waiting to hear that. I I need to hear that. That I am no longer a slave to sin. Because of being in Christ, we can, you can experience freedom. So while sin is still present in our lives, right? You know it is. I know it is. It is no longer our master. Sin is no longer your master. Which brings us to the fourth beautiful reality of being united in Christ in verses 8 through 10. The final union statement is a summary of what we've already heard about, about the resurrection, but with one little kind of addendum. This text is looking toward the future. So having been in Christ when it comes to death, believers will share in His final victory. Think about that. Verse 8 states that clearly, we believe that we will also live with Him. But it is in verses 9 and 10 that adds something new. There's an assurance in these verses. Verses nine, verse 9 declares that the post-resurrected Christ can never die again. And that death has no dominion over Christ at all. And that's good news. And verse 10 encourages us in that sin's defeat, the risen Christ lives for the glory of God. So Jesus Christ defeated sin and death so that His victory could be for the magnification of God. And that leads to the conclusion of this text. We're going to pick this up after Advent. But what I want you to notice is where this ends and how it connects to beauty. Romans 6.11 is the application of this total passage. And some of you might need to highlight it, bracket it, memorize it, stick it in your skull, our thick skulls. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's, it's time, it, it, Paul is saying this is the facts. This is what has been won for you. So you must consider yourselves dead sin. And you must consider yourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. Period. That, that, that's the application of this whole thing. A right biblical understanding of what Paul is saying here will lead those who are in Christ to a different, totally different orientation in our lives. They will consider themselves to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. What does this mean? 
What does it mean for you? First, it means that you will need to consider whether or not you are in Adam or in Christ. Those are the two theological, biblical categories. Where are you? In which camp are you? There's no middle ground. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? If you are in the camp of in Adam, then it might be hard. You might try as hard as you want to, but there is really no ability to truly change. Sure, you can go to a class. Sure, you can read a health a self-help book. Sure, you can have all kinds of people patting you on the butt and encouraging you along the way. But no real, deep, lasting, spiritual change is ever going to take place. The Bible says that even right now, you are under judgment, that you are guilty, and you are in eternal danger. Nothing that I've talked about in regarding to being in Christ applies to you. Nothing. So I would ask you, to take a careful look at who you are. And maybe today would be the day when you would open your heart to Christ and receive Him and become in Him. But secondly, this text helps believers understand temptations and sin. It helps us see that even after receiving Christ, we still battle with sin. We battle with sinful thoughts. We struggle with lust, right? We struggle with longing for things that are not ours. We, we, we struggle with actions. We struggle with attitudes, but it's not the same battle. Being dead to sin does not mean that our sinful inclinations have been completely eradicated even though that's maybe what you've been told if you just give your life to christ it'll all go away you've been sold something a false bill of sale right there that's just not true but something has changed friends and do you see what it is according to romans 6 we have the power to say no we have the power to say no to to the power of sin in jesus's name it means that Jesus bought and paid for your ability to walk away from temptation and to say, I don't want to do what you want. I, I, I will have no part of that. Oh, there's something inside me that longs for that. I want that connection. I want that relationship. I want this. I need that. I think, no, I have the power in Jesus' name to say no. And that is enough. Done, sin. You no longer are my master. I have a new one that has not only conquered you, but is reigning, and I share in his victory. For some of you, that reality, and it is a reality, could be a difference between bondage and freedom. The tragedy of being in bondage to something is believing deeply in your soul that you cannot and you will not change, right? That's bondage. I can't change. It's slavery, isn't it? Hopelessness is ultimately birthed in your soul because of this bondage mentality. I can't get out of this. But the text says, 
you can be free. You can be free. Why? Because Jesus defeated the power of sin in your life. You need to see yourself as dead to sin and alive to God. This past week, um, one of the things that I did was I read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And uh, I, I read not the old John Bunyan, I read the new Amplified, which is a little bit more easier to process when you're on vacation. In Pilgrim's Progress, the character Christian approaches a, a place that is called the Palace Beautiful. And in front are two very large lions. Now, Christian was told by a, a faithful man named Porter that the lions were chained to two large rocks. But when he approaches the palace beautiful, he must choose whether or not he will have faith and believe that the lions are indeed chained to these rocks. Fear strikes his heart, right? As it would with any of you. Two roaring lions. And you want me to pass in between them? What are you smoking? Really? He almost didn't pass the test because he became of their, afraid of their size and he became afraid of their roars. And after he passes by, he enters into the palace. And he had the opportunity to talk to two women, piety and charity, about his experience. They smile and they encourage him to revisit the lions in the morning. And uh, because what will he see then? He will see that they ne neither have claws nor teeth. <laughs> no claws, no teeth. Another woman named Prudence says this, when we see through the eyes of faith, we soon learn that trials and temptations are mere paper dragons. Deceptions of the enemy placed in our path to frighten us back. Think with me right now, friends, about one sin. One. And be honest with yourself. If you can't be honest with us, be honest with yourself. What is one sin in your life that you would like to change? You need to realize that you do not have to be in bondage to that sin. Through confession, through prayer, the Word of God, and brothers and sisters, around you life change is possible finally this chapter is so important friends because of its vision of what real life or real humanity is about a life that is dead to sin and alive to god is the best life after all it, it, this is the best life now. Not what some bestseller might sell you. This is the best life now. Paul wrote this section of Romans not just so that you could know what it means, just so that, not, how do I say this? He wrote it not just so that you would know what it means to be in Christ Jesus. He wrote it so that you could be truly alive. He didn't give it to you as a, just like, okay, here's the facts out here. It's, it's not just about that future you. It's the you right now.
You see, there's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more compelling. There's nothing more attractive. There's nothing more thrilling than seeing the power of the gospel lived out in your life. You want to know one of the most thrilling, engaging evangelism uh, techniques? Living this way. You don't need another track. You, you don't need to take another class. You don't need uh, to have the Romans road memorized. Some of it is living into the very reality that in Christ Jesus, this is my reality. And there is nothing more beautiful, more powerful, more compelling than a person whose life has been changed by the gospel. You want to see the church grow? Live into this reality. Let me tell you how sin has been canceled and its power is no longer over me. You know what? In Christ Jesus, it could be true for you. As Christians, a Christian is one who is being beautified, friends. By the power of Christ and, and by being united with Him, those who trust in Him are plunged into His death. And they are raised with Him to new life. So one of the reasons that we practice and celebrate, and I want to see more of this as people come to Christ. No, I, I want to see this. How about the first time? Somebody who's come to Christ for the first time. I want us to celebrate. You know, we talk about celebrating 15 years of marriage. How about celebrating new life in Christ? Huh? Giddy up. We, I, I would love to, to celebrate it because there is a powerful thing of seeing and hearing the way the union with Christ changes absolutely everything. There is nothing that cannot be changed. Nothing. So a Christian, by his or her, her union with Christ, is dead to sin and alive to God, and there is absolutely nothing more powerful and beautiful than that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.